morning. Good morning. I'm going to say that again, make sure I'm heard. Um, if you listen to people talk about marriage, you get the impression it's kind of a mystery. And it's a mystery that you kind of enter into blindfolded. And then you wander through marriage and you hope that somehow you'll stumble on the secret to happiness. And if you listen to people, here's some of the opinions about the secret to marriage. One guy said two times a week we go to a nice restaurant for a little wine, good food, and companionship. She goes on Tuesdays, I go on Fridays. Here's a similar one. We, we sleep in separate beds. Hers is in Florida, mine in New York. One guy said, I take my wife everywhere, but she keeps finding her way home. I always hold her hand. If I let go, she shops. Rodney Dangerfield said, my wife and I were happy for 20 years. Then we met. Milton Berle said, a good wife always forgives her husband when she's wrong. George Burns said, I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. Clint Eastwood said, there's only one way to have a happy marriage. And as soon as I learn what it is, I'll get married again. Henny Youngman said, the secret of a happy marriage remains a secret. Is that what marriage is? Is it a mystery? Is there a hidden secret that we're forced to grope around for until we find it? Are we, be, are we doomed to be miserable unless we happen to get lucky enough to find the secret? Well, let me tell you something I hope you already know. The secret to a good marriage is not a secret. It's in the best-selling book of all time on the third page. And it's not luck. It takes hard work and commitment and endurance. We have a small group at our house every Monday night, and DT and Trish Whitaker are in our group, and they have their little son, Owen, and he comes over every Monday night. I think Owen's about two and a half years old. And, and um, Owen's very shy, so my wife and I try to befriend Owen and uh, whenever you ask Owen a question, if the answer to the question is yes, he has a great answer to it. Because you say to Owen, do you want a drink of water? And he says, I do. Do you like that cookie? I do. You see, out of the mouth of babes, the, the secret to marriage that's not a secret is to say, I do, I do, I do. 
and to mean I do, and to turn to your spouse today and say, I still do. Now, the odd thing about marriage is that though no one seems to have the answer, everyone has an opinion. So we have a plethora of opinions about how to make marriage work. You go to the bookstore and there's a whole section on marriage and relationships. Experts are continually writing about marriage and talking about marriage. And so there is marriage advice ad nauseum. So what I would like to do today is first unlearn what you have maybe think about marriage before we learn what God tells us about marriage. And so what I want to do is go back to the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And I want to point out some lies that we need to dispel and then some truths that we need to embrace. First of all, the lies we need to dispel and those I find in verses 18 to 23. We all have concepts about marriage that are bogus. And what I want to do is point out five that we find in this passage. Number one is one plus God equals enough. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, if you saw the book entitled One Plus God Equals Enough, you'd probably grab it and say, that looks like a good book. We hear that line and we start to nod, we start to say amen, but is it true? In the first chapter of Genesis, five times we read this phrase, God saw that it was good. And then at the end of chapter one, we have this summary statement in verse 31, God saw all that he has, had made, and behold, it was very good. So God's creating, and everything's good until we get to chapter 2 and verse 18, and immediately we're hit with this phrase, it is not good. It is not good. This is the first time God says anything in his creation is not good. And what is not good? It is not good for the man to be alone. You say, well, it sounds good to me. I mean, here's a sinless man. He's got a perfect relationship with God. He's living in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. There's no sickness. He never wakes up with a cold or a headache. He doesn't have allergy problems like I do right now. He has no sadness. He has no crabgrass. He doesn't have to deal with mosquitoes. He has no mother-in-law. You say, what more could he want? Isn't that enough? Well, not according to God, because God said it is not good for man to be alone. Now, let me point this out to you if it's not obvious. One plus God equals alone. One plus God equals not good. Did you get that? 
There's the equation. One plus God equals not good. So if we say one plus God is enough, that's a lie. Ryan Taloa was a college student here, and he went on staff with Campus Outreach, and now he's down in Texas, and he always had a a phrase that he would say, because he was committed not to get married, his phrase was, I'm going to be a bachelor till the rapture. I heard the other day that he got engaged. So I, I guess he figured out what this passage is saying, that it's not good for a man to be alone. You see, God saw that Adam needed a human companion to correspond to him. And I think sometimes we're guilty of super-spiritualizing everything. So if someone is lonely, we say, you just need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You're just not spiritual enough. That's why you're lonely. But in this passage, God acknowledges that we have an intrinsic need, not just to have fellowship with him, but to have fellowship and companionship with our spouse. Now, let me clarify this. This is not saying that everybody needs to get married. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7, God says he has gifted certain people to remain single. And even if you get married, you will spend a large portion of your life single. I was doing the math the other day. I've been married twice. And I did the math and realized I have spent more years single than I have married. So even if you get married, you still have to adjust to what it's like to live as a single person. And it also doesn't mean that you get your own all of your companionship from your wife. Even if you're married, you need friends, you need fellowship, you need the community of a church. But what it does mean is that one of the main reasons God designed marriage was to meet the human need for companionship. Heard about two elderly ranchers in northern Arizona. They were having breakfast together and talking about cattle and horses and, and all that stuff that ranchers talk about. And one rancher turned to the other and said, isn't your 50th wedding anniversary coming up? And he said, yeah, on the 17th. And he said, well, what are you going to do to celebrate? And he said, well, for our 25th, I took B to Tucson Maybe for our 50th, I'll go down there and get her. Some of you are married, and you're living in isolation. You're living out this lie in a practical way. Because, you see, God not only designed us to have fellowship with him, companionship with him. He created you to have companionship with your spouse. And your spouse ought to be your best friend. 
Second lie. Three is a crowd. Three is a crowd. This is the other end of the pendulum. Some guys say, I don't need to get married. I can stay single. I'm, God's all I need. The other side of the pendulum is God brings that person into your life and you enjoy your marriage relationship so much that you stiff-arm God and you leave him out of the equation. See, God didn't create Eve in order to replace God's involvement in Adam's life. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for the newlyweds. Marriage is designed to have God in the middle of it. It takes three to make a marriage. You, your spouse, and God. That's why when you as a Christian choose to marry an unbeliever, you not only disobey God, you step into a relationship that is dysfunctional from the start because it is only horizontal. It is not vertical. The diagram of marriage is a triangle with God at the top and each spouse at the bottom. And the beauty of that is that the closer you get to God, what happens? The closer you get to each other. And the farther you get from God, the farther you get from each other. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they not only hid from God, they actually got alienated and isolated from each other. And that's why when God asked Adam what happened when they sinned, what did he do? He threw Eve under the bus. He said, the woman made me do it. I don't know about you, but that's never been a good word to use for my wife, the woman. Further they got from God, the further they got from each other. Broken marriages always involve at least one partner moving away from God. So if you want to strengthen your marriage, draw near to God. Three is not a crowd. It's just right. Third lie. You have to be the same to be equal. You have to have the same role in order to be equal. Now, that's a popular lie today. And you may have bought into it. If you hear me say... A husband and wife have different roles and different responsibilities. There are many people today who get very defensive. And they conclude that I am saying that they're not equal because in order to be truly equal, you have to be exactly the same. Well, let's see what God says in verse 18. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. You say, see, there it is. You got the man and the helper, and they're not equal. I would agree that that term in English is not very appealing, helper. It's a kind of a demeaning term. I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, and it says helper, 
one that helps. That's not a very impressive title, but you know what? If you look at this word in the Hebrew, it has a different meaning entirely. In Hebrew, it's a word used throughout the Old Testament to mean someone who comes to the rescue of another person. It's used of an army that comes like the cavalry to deliver their comrades. And you know who this word is used most of in the Old Testament? It's used of God. David said this in Psalm 70, verse 5, God is my helper and my deliverer. God is our helper. And God has made your wife to be your helper, your deliverer. She is the one who comes riding in like the cavalry to deliver you. And in order to accomplish that, God made the woman different from the man, and he assigned us different roles. That's developed more fully in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, it says the husband, the husband's role is to be like Jesus. That's your role model. The wife's role is to be like the church. That's your role model. Husbands, you are to lay down your life in love for your bride. And wives, you are to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. In other words, the, the role of the husband is 100% sacrifice. Lay down your life. The role of the wife is 100% surrender in submission to the husband. And the beauty of that relationship is it, it corresponds to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you find fulfillment in your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's because you have surrendered 100% to him. In the marriage relationship, the same is true. It's a 100-0 relationship. I give my all in faith in that relationship, and what happens? I find my life by losing it. Just like my relationship with Jesus, it's true in our marriage relationship as well. Husbands and wives are equal in importance, but they are different in responsibilities. I played a lot of basketball growing up, and even though I'm 6'2", I can't jump, so I played guard. But there would always be different guys on the team, and you'd always have a guy who was a sinner thinking he was a guard. So he'd be like 6'8", and he'd be out there at the three-point line, and what would I say to him? Play your position. Now, is the center more important than the guard, or the guard more important to the center, than the center? No. They're all equally important, but everybody has to play their position. If I, as a guard, was under the goal rebounding, and the ball came out, and I wasn't playing defense like I'm supposed to, I'm not playing my position. See, everybody has a position on the team, they have to play their position. Some spouses are that way. They're running all over the court trying to play every position. And what they need to be told is, play your position. Because marriage is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. And every individual is equal in importance, even though we have differing roles. You see that in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have different responsibilities 
Are they equal? Yes. So dispel the lie that says you have to be the same to be equal. Fourth lie. Women are from Mars. I'm sorry, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. I obviously never read the book. But I've seen the title. It's a catchy title. I don't know. If, I don't think people have to read the book. I've seen people hear the title and nod like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, let me tell you something. Your spouse is not from outer space. She is specially designed by God to complete you. Verse 18 goes on to say that the woman is suitable for him. That word suitable means corresponding to. Your wife is the missing piece in your life. If you got out a game of uh, a jigsaw puzzle and you opened the box and half the pieces were missing, you couldn't complete the puzzle. That's the way your life is without your spouse. In fact, I like the fact that Genesis 2-7 tells us God made Adam out of the dust. But in Genesis 2-22, when he decided to make Eve, he made her out of Adam's rib. Why do you think he did that? I think he did that to say to Adam, she is the missing part of your life that needs to be brought back into that place in your life for you to find completeness and fulfillment. And if you notice in our passage, I'm not going to read the verses, but in verses 19 and 20, God has Adam to name the animals. So he brings them all in front of Adam and he names them. You know, aardvark, armadillo, albatross. He's naming them. And while he's naming them, he's noticing that they're paired up. There are males and there are females. And he's noticing there's nobody for me. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 20, it has this forlorn statement. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a a helper suitable for him. So he's naming all the animals and he's noticing everybody's got somebody but me. Now we say... A dog is man's best friend. Adam had a dog. You talk about an obedient dog. No sin in the world. He had to be doing everything Adam told him to do. But he was not complete. And why did God have him name the animals? I think he named the animals so that he would come to grips with his own need. And when Adam saw his need, God took his rib and fashioned a solution for him and brought him that solution. And that's why the New Testament tells us in Ephesians 5.28 that you are to love your wife as your own body because she is your body. She is that which is taken out of you and brought back to complete you. I'm sure you've heard it said that Eve was not taken from Adam's head so that he would rule over her. She was not taken from his feet so that he could walk on her. She was taken from his side 
to be embraced and held close to his heart. Why not turn to your wife today and say, you are not from outer space. You are heaven sent. You are the missing piece in my life. You fulfill me. You make me whole. You complete me. Before I met you, I was only half the man I am today. If you need more lines later, talk to me. Fifth lie. Sex is bad. Now that seems like a rather obvious lie. But I say it because many Christians have rather ungodly notions about sex. Some people think it was the original sin. But it's clear from this passage that it's God's idea. He's for it, okay? He's for it. In fact, it says in verse 22 that God fashioned a woman, fashioned a woman from the man's rib. And that word fashion means literally he built. Now, can you imagine that? God takes this rib and he acts like a sculptor and he carefully and deliberately shapes the woman into a creature who would meet Adam's need. She was built by God, so I think it's safe to say she was well built. She was a real beauty. And Adam didn't just wake up and she's lying beside him. It says God brought her to him. It's kind of the picture of a wedding. You see the, the father bringing his daughter down to give her away. That's the idea we see here. Adam wakes up, he's got this funny feeling in his side because his rib was taken out. He hears a voice and God says, you've got one more creature to name. And so he turns around and here's God bringing Eve to him. But she doesn't have a wedding dress on. What's she wearing? Nothing. She's, as we used to say in the South, she's naked. You see, God is not opposed to our enjoyment of sex. He designed it. It's his idea. He gave it to Adam and Eve as a gift. Satan did not develop this idea. What he does is distorts this idea. He tells you that God wants to take away your fun by limiting it to the marriage relationship. That's a lie. Because when we violate the design for God's gift of sex, rather than finding enjoyment and fulfillment, you know what we find? We find guilt and emptiness and shame. So God built her, brought her to Adam in her birthday suit. And I want you to notice Adam's response in verse 23. He says... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the first recorded words of the first man. But they really sound rather calculated. But I mean, here he is realizing he's all alone. He doesn't have a mate. 
God prepares this gorgeous woman, and she's coming to him naked, and he says, okay, this is now bone of my bone. If you look at the Hebrew, the, the start of this phrase when he says, this is now, needs an exclamation point after it. Kyle and Dalich say this is an expression of joyous astonishment. Jameson Fawcett Brown, who wrote their commentary in Victorian times, say this is an emphatic phrase that should be translated, now at last, this is the one. In other words, Adam looks at her and he says, wow. And he names her, whoa, man. He names her, whoa, man, because she's taken out a man. He, he names her in the Hebrew, Isha, because she's taken out of Ish. And the name says, she's part of me. She came out of me. She is that missing piece in me that God has crafted into the perfect person to fulfill me. Not just socially and emotionally, but physically as well. Now, those are the lies you need to dispel. Let me give you the truths you need to embrace. There are four of them. And we see those in verses 24 and 25. Number one, marriage is your primary human relationship. It's primary. God didn't say it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a father and mother. He didn't say, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make him a child. Or I'll make him a village. No, he says, I'll make him a wife. Because that's the most primary of all relationships. And verses 24 and 25 are really a commentary written by Moses for future generations to tell them how to make marriage work and the first thing he says you need to do is to leave your father and mother. Leave the most primary relationship you had up until now, the relationship between child and parent, to enter into this new relationship because it is now your primary relationship. So the first thing you do to enter into marriage is you cut the cord with your parents. Doesn't mean you abandon them. Doesn't mean you cut off all contact with them, but you cut off dependence upon them. Financially, emotionally, physically. And parents, let me say this to you. The very best gift you can give to your children when they get married is to release them. Let them go out there and fail a little bit to establish that relationship. You need to release them. In fact, you should be raising them with the idea of releasing them. It's a concern to me today when I look around at so many families and their child-centered families. Child-centered families. How long are children in the home? hopefully, about 18 years. And then you want them to be launched somewhere else. 
And what I see is a lot of times the father is often devoted to his job, the mother is often devoted to being a mother, and then the children leave, and there's no relationship between the two. That primary relationship has not been established and built. And what's ironic is that that is not only detrimental to you, it's detrimental to your kids. The thing that your child wants more, if you want to be a good parent to your child, the very best thing you can do is be a good spouse to their husband or their father or their mother. You've got to make marriage your primary relationship. Secondly, your marriage is a permanent relationship. The first phrase in verse 24 says leave. The second phrase says cleave. That means to cling to, to hold to, to stick to like glue. When you got married, you got stuck. After Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew 19, 6, he added this, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God joins a husband and wife together, and your obligation is to cleave. You know what the glue is that holds you together? You say, well, I guess it's those romantic feelings I get once in a while. I guess it's those goose pimples that I, that I got when I first met my wife. No. The glue that holds your relationship together is the commitment of your will. And that's why in the marriage ceremony, you stood there and you made a covenant with your spouse by saying, I do. That's why they call the words you said in the marriage ceremony your vows. Because it's a covenant relationship. It's a commitment. In Malachi 2.14, God calls that lady you live with your wife by covenant. Proverbs 2.17 talks about the woman who leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Let me tell you something if you don't know this yet. Marriage is difficult. It's challenging. Sometimes it seems impossible. God takes two basically self-centered people and he puts you together and says, all right, I want you to become one and live in harmony through your life. And that's tough. That's difficult. That's challenging. And feelings will not be enough to hold you together. It will take the glue of commitment. You say, well, Dan, I didn't know it was going to be this tough. I I didn't see this coming. I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. Think, Think back to your wedding day. You probably have it on video. During your vows, you said something like this, for better or for worse. I'm going to get married whether he gets better or worse. She gets better or worse. That's what you're saying. Now, why is that in the marriage vows? Because marriage says yes to an imperfect person. 
That's why in premarital counseling, I always ask the couple, I say, can you tell me five things about your fiancé that you don't like? And if they look at me and say, no, he's wonderful, I say, you're not ready to get married. Because you don't go into marriage with blinders on. You go in with your eyes wide open, knowing this person has imperfections, and I'm going to accept him or her with their imperfections and love them unconditionally. That's what marriage does. I'm not saying to you today that the person you call your husband is easy to live with. I'm not saying that the person you call your wife is easy to live with. But what I am saying is that's part of the deal. And if you traded your current spouse for another one, guess what? They would be imperfect too. Because marriage says yes to an imperfect person. And by the way, nobody's easy to live with. Not even you. Let me remind you of something else you said on your wedding day. You said, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. You remember that? You know why that's in there? Because marriage not only says yes to an imperfect person, marriage says yes to imperfect circumstances. The only thing I can tell you about circumstances is this. They will change. And when you get married, you're saying, whichever way they go, I'm committed. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia International University. His wife, Muriel, was a missionary, a, a noted speaker, a very articulate lady. In 1983, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and gradually began to decline in her health. At first, he had people take care of her while he did his job, but as time went on, she got more and more frustrated if he wasn't the one taking care of her. And so in 1990, to the surprise of many people, he resigned his presidency to care for her full-time. Her health continued to go down. She eventually lost her entire memory, was bedridden, couldn't feed herself, couldn't smile, couldn't speak. At that point in time, someone asked him this question. Why do you care for her now? She doesn't even know who you are. And I loved his answer. He said, it's because I know who she is. What was he doing? He was keeping his commitment. He was keeping his promise. He was loving and cherishing her in sickness and in health. You see, marriage is designed to be a commitment to an imperfect person in imperfect circumstances. And that's what we agree to when we sign up. We agreed to make our relationship permanent. Third truth. 
Marriage is an exclusive relationship. Notice that it says in verse 24, to his wife, not wives. God designed one man and one woman. He could have designed for Adam to have many wives. That way he could have multiplied and filled the earth faster. He didn't do that. He made the marriage relationship exclusive. And that's why when I do a wedding, I ask each of the participants to answer this question. I say to them, do you promise to forsake all others? And I have them say, I do. Because when you get married, you are saying yes to your spouse, and you are forsaking everyone else. You are saying yes to your spouse, and you are saying no to everyone else. Because marriage is an exclusive relationship. And then the fourth truth. Marriage is an intimate relationship. Look at the end of verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. Now that happens spiritually in the ceremony. It happens physically when you consummate the marriage. But it also happens practically, emotionally, intellectually, socially. And becoming one is not a instantaneous thing. I think it's a process throughout life. You've seen couples that have been together for 50 years and they finish each other's sentences and they, they you know, start to look like each other and, and you see one of them and they don't, just don't look right. You're always like, well, where is your spouse? Because you two belong together. They have become, in practical sense, that one flesh. And I think the key to that is in verse 25. This is kind of a throwaway verse for a lot of people. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now a lot of people read that and say, that, that's awkward. I think it's essential. Because I think it's the key to oneness. And I don't think he's simply making a statement here about their modesty or lack of modesty. I think he's making a comment about their willingness not to hide anything from each other. They were bare and open and transparent before each other, and they were not ashamed. I think the key to oneness is transparency. A lot of us think that People wouldn't love me if I told them what I was like. You ever deal with that? If you really knew what I was like, you wouldn't love me. The reality is, I can't love you if I don't know who you are. What happens in a marriage relationship, this is the one person we say, she's going to accept me no matter what. So I can be transparent. I can take the, the, the fig leaves off. I can quit hiding. I can, I can come out and be transparent and know that I'm going to be accepted by you. You see, that's the key to oneness. If we continue to hide from each other, we never experience that oneness. We never experience that unconditional love because we're still hiding junk, even from our spouse. And you know what keeps us from being transparent? Sin. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? 
They hid from God, and they really hid from each other. Because the key to transparency with your spouse is transparency with God. When I come to God and say, here's my junk, here's who I am, I'm going to be honest with you, what happens? God forgives me and takes away my shame and allows me to then be transparent with other people, starting with my spouse. I love the verse in Hebrews 4.13 where it talks about God's word and it says we are laid bare B-A-R-E, laid bare before the eyes of God. Some of us need to go back to the garden and be laid bare before God. To say, God, take your word and strip me of all the coverings that I'm putting over my sin and let me be transparent in your presence. And when you are transparent with God and you experience his unconditional forgiveness and love, then you're able to be transparent with your spouse and other people as well. And with your spouse, that's when you start to experience the oneness that God designed for your relationship to hold. So there are the truths to embrace. Make marriage your primary relationship, your permanent relationship, your exclusive relationship, and your intimate relationship. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and you've got to admit that you're embracing the lies and you're discarding the truths. And if you are, I also know that you're not finding fulfillment in your marriage, but rather you're finding frustration in your marriage. So let me give you the secret that isn't a secret. You need to say, I still do. First to God, and then to your spouse. Starts with God. The cool thing in the Bible is that the Jesus relationship with us is described as a marriage. Jesus is the groom and we're the bride. Jesus said his vows to you and me on the cross of Calvary when he gave his life for us. We said our vows at salvation... But sometimes we lose track of our vows and what we really said to Jesus. And communion is a great opportunity to renew your vows to the Lord Jesus. To examine yourselves and confess those things to the Lord. To be transparent before God. And then take the communion, which is like renewing your vows to say, I'm committed to you afresh. I still do in my relationship with you which will give you the capacity then to turn to your spouse and say the same. I still do. I'm going to pray and then I'll give you the opportunity to come and take communion, but I'd ask you to prepare your heart first before you come and mean what you're doing and mean what you're saying before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who showed us what unconditional love is who came down and sought us out when we were your enemies and bought us with a price and didn't just bring us back to where we were but brought us into a relationship with you that is a marriage relationship. 
Lord, that kind of love is beyond our understanding. Today, as we have the privilege of doing what you asked us to do, take the bread and the cup, we pray that we would examine our hearts, that we would be honest before you today, that we would bring our junk to you, that we would quit trying to hide it with fig leaves and realize that it's paid for at the cross of Jesus. Lord, help us to be transparent today, first with you, to celebrate the price you paid to make that possible, and then with our spouses to live out that oneness in the relationship you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.